Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, we get to jump right back into 2 Peter one last time. Big flyover, review, celebration, and communion based on this. Uh, 2 Peter, you think about Peter, St. Peter, uh, a blue-collar fisherman, uh, you know, hard-working Jewish kid, brother of Andrew, friends with James and John. Jesus is the one walking along the seashore. says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Peter and his brother, James and John, maybe partners in the business, they dropped their nets and followed Jesus. We see Peter is the mouth. Uh, some have said that he's actually got a foot-shaped mouth. You see, Peter is the spokesperson He's willing to say stuff, and sometimes it's the wrong stuff. But Jesus is the one that, that calls him out in, in a, a statement that Peter made, that uh, de- declaring Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, your name is the rock, or a little stone, and upon this rock, large stone, which was the statement, you're the Christ, on that statement that you, Peter, got to be the one that was the mouthpiece, on this statement, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And uh, Peter denies Jesus three times at the arrest and the trial. Uh, The rooster crowed three times. If I'm just kind of giving you a flyover, if you're not familiar with this, this is contained in the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Peter denies Jesus three times, but on Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit comes, and they've, by the way, they've seen the resurrection, the Holy Spirit falls on about 120 uh, Christians that have been praying in the upper room, falls on Jerusalem, and uh, it's where we see speaking in tongues, and they were known languages, and we see a harvest of, I think, 3,000 on that first preaching, and guess who was preaching? Peter. And we go through the book of Acts and we see Peter take a a major uh, role in early parts of Acts. A little bit later on, we we start seeing this other guy, the Apostle Paul. But know that Peter is there all along. And what we discover is Peter and Paul, they had some, some friction, but they actually, they're on the same team. And as they grow and they age, they age in grace and wisdom. And it's toward the end of Peter's life that he gets to Rome. Right after Paul is released from prison and takes off to the west, Peter comes into Rome and he's actually intentionally keeping his location uh, secret because Nero is on the throne as the emperor. And Nero is crazy. He's already burning Christians for his parties. And major persecution is coming. And so it's there in 64 AD that Peter... You know, Paul gets to write 13 epistles. Peter hasn't written a single one. But Peter, seeing what's going on around the world and having a great heart for the Christians in Asia Minor, writes a letter called 1 Peter. Peter got to write a letter that's in our scriptures. Only four years later, he needs to actually write a part two. Why? Because... The culture and the situation that everyone's facing has changed. See, in 1 Peter, the enemy, the devil, is described as a roaring lion. 
And that's why uh, we kind of joke and we nickname lions Nero. Because Nero seemed to be the embodiment of the devil himself. And, and true, there was actually a real devil behind the devil. And what the devil was attempting to do was to shut Christianity down by torturing it from the outside in. And, and knock it back into the dark ages and into the corners and underground. Get them to shut up. Four years later, this kind of outside-in persecution hasn't really done its job. And Christians are actually uh, being bold and standing up for Jesus appropriately, and the faith is spreading. And so guess what happens? The very thing that the devil could not do from the outside-in as a roaring lion, he actually begins to do from the inside-out as a ravenous wolf. It's in Acts chapter 20 in its different context, but it is on the corner of where Peter is writing to. Um, but, but Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and he stops off uh, near Ephesus to have the pastors of the house churches in Ephesus pray over him as he goes to Jerusalem where he's going to get arrested. And he warns the, the pastors of the house churches in Jerusalem, he says... Um, these words in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They're going to come in among you. By the time we have 2 Peter in 67 to 68 AD, this is happening all over the churches all over the world. That there are false teachers teaching false doctrines because if we can't Shut Christianity down from the outside in, the devil that is. He will destroy it from the inside out with false teaching. And so while Peter may, may wanted to write on some other things, um, and he just wrote his other letter a couple years prior, he's got to actually write a second one. And it's all about this thing on false teachers and false teachings. Peter happens to nail one of the, the most rapidly growing false teachings that absolutely pervaded the church. And we talked about that in, in the sermon series. We didn't do a deep dive, but it's called Gnosticism. And it really forms, I believe, the, the heartbeat of chapter 1. You see, if I were to pick a key word for chapter 1, it would be this word. Enough. Enough. You have enough. Actually, you have, you have everything. You have more than enough. Whereas the Gnostics were saying, you don't have enough. You don't have enough knowledge. You don't have enough power. You don't have to have enough anointing. You don't have enough gifting. You don't know enough. You don't believe enough. You don't do enough. You're not enough. And Peter's whole chapter one is like, you kidding me? Enough and more than enough. Right here, right now. Enough. And that's found in what I believe is the key verse of chapter 1, if not the whole book. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter says this. His divine power has granted to us all things. How many things? All things pertaining to life and godliness. You go, but I got a secular world. And I got a day job, and it's not really that Christian. You know what? You got enough for that as well. Life and godliness, the spiritual realm and the physical realm. You have enough. You are enough. 
And you don't need a guru. You don't need a mystic. You don't need someone else or something else. You already have it. We look through and we see all the enough of God given to us in chapter 1. And I'm just doing like a few. I'm cherry picking. Verse 1, you have a faith of equal standing as the apostles. You go, oh my goodness, the apostles, they're super Christians. They could raise the dead. Yeah, you got the same exact faith. Divine power, verse 3. You have that. He is, by his divine power, he's granted to you everything pertaining to life and godliness. Full knowledge, verse 3. You have epinosis. Not just information, but experiential knowledge. Great and precious promises, verse 4. We have an, an, an excellent and reliable and trustworthy Quote, prophetic word made certain. That's verses 16 through 21. So many more things, but all of this freely bestowed. That's the word granted. It's already been granted. You don't need to work for it, muscle it out, sweat it out. Now, I'm not saying that we should not apply ourselves. That message is absolutely in chapter 1 as well. That we should be diligent to become partakers of the divine nature, that we should add to our faith virtues. Yes, that's true. We, you got to show up. But to know this, you and I already have enough. That's reflected other places in the scriptures. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and, our, uh, of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We already have it. And then his little letter to the Colossians, Colossians 2.10, and you have been filled in him. Some translations actually say, in him you are complete. Doesn't mean that you're mature or that you're as Christ-like as you will someday be, but everything you need to handle your life and to grow in godliness and become a partaker of the divine nature you don't have to go looking for that. It's been freely bestowed. If only we would believe that Jesus is enough. That the scriptures are enough. I find this fascinating. You and I live in the number one most resourced generation in all of Christianity. We have more resources than any other group of Christians in all of history. Every morning I wake up and there are literally thousands of people that, that want my email address. Yeah, and, and these are Christians from curriculum houses and blogs and they want to sell me a class. Who is Stu at Verge Network? Stu! I might have signed up for something four years ago. I'm tired. I'm, I'm an expert at unsubscribing from Christian stuff. Because here's what my observation is. We've never had more resources. But we're still not as robust as many generations that all they had was maybe one portion of Scripture in their walk with Christ. Why do they do better than we do? So it's not the more and the other that's making us healthy and strong. 
perhaps that's actually, we're, it's tricking us out of going to the source daily. The scriptures and believing that the scriptures are enough. Jesus is enough. Who we are right now. Don't take this wrong. We're not who we are going to be if we keep walking with Jesus. He is changing us. But he says, your faith right now is enough. Let me just read, read you this one, because you know what? There's, there was uh, many other examples throughout, and then I'll pass it to Tyler, many other examples in the New Testament where Gnosticism was gaining a foothold. We have it in Colossae, First and Second Timothy, in Ephesians. That was the major he- heresy. You need to know more, do more, be more, understand more. And that's what he in 2 Peter is writing to. But did you know also the Apostle John in his first letter, 1 John, the Gnostics were trying to tell the Christians, you don't have enough. You don't know enough. You're not smart enough. And this is what John would write. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. He's talking about false teachers. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie as it has been taught to you, abide in him. Abide in him. Here's the takeaway. We don't need more. We simply need to believe God and walk moment by moment in and into our sufficiency in Christ which is enough and even more than enough. Tyler, show us chapter 2. So if that's the primary theme of chapter 1, I think we can see the primary theme of chapter 2. And it's actually the same idea. It just has a slightly different texture in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. In effect, then, what happens is Jesus said, or uh, Paul, Peter, <laughs> got to him eventually. Peter says, you have enough for the life of godliness. You have enough to pursue everything you need to pursue Christ. And then he starts to hear this concern from his audience. And the concern is, well, is the foundation really sure? Can I really trust this? And Peter, Peter says, yes, it is. I can understand there are false teachers with false doctrine who have come in and they're starting to make you question the foundation on which you have built your Christian life. But no, understand this, God will judge them. And Peter points to three different examples. He says, you can trust that the judgment is coming. You can trust that God is mighty to save and mighty to judge because he judged the angels. More than the angels, he judged Noah's generation. More than Noah's generation, he judged Sodom and Gomorrah while saving Lot. And I think we actually see in those examples what is taking place here as Peter draws out this theme. You see, if you look at these examples, what stands out to me is that these are three stories in which God's judgment and righteousness rain down with an intensity and a ferocity that is terrifying. Angels are cast out of heaven, out of the presence of God. The world of Noah is deluged with water. 
Sodom and Gomorrah have hail of fire rain down upon them. Yet, there's something in the background of these stories that Peter's audience would have known. They would have had the ear to pick it up. Because in these stories, we don't only see God's judgments descend, but we see that God's grace is present with a scandalous abundance. Let me show you this. In Genesis 18 and 19, in Genesis 18 and 19, we get the story of Lot. And if you understand or if you remember that story, you have essentially a split-screen kind of thing happening in Genesis 18 and 19. You have Abraham first approached by three men whom he associates as the Lord. And Abraham, he encounters these men, he starts to have a conversation with them. Two of them get up and leave, and here's where the screen splits. And those two go to Sodom, and they encounter Lot. And when we talked through 2 Peter chapter 2, we talked a little bit about that story. But here's what's happening on the other screen. Is Abraham is still with one of those three men, and he has this conversation recorded in Genesis 18, 23 through 33. Then the Lord drew near and said, will you, indeed sweep or, uh, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put righteous to death with the wicked, so the righteous fare as the wicked do. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said to Abraham, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Do you see what Abraham's doing? Starting a negotiation. He knows Abraham is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. His nephew Lot is in Sodom. And in an attempt to spare Lot, he enters into a negotiation with God. 50 righteous. Okay, you'll save it for 50 righteous. Can I get 45? The Lord responds, I will not destroy it for 45. And he spoke to him and said, Suppose there are 40 are found there. And he answered the Lord, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, Lord, do not be angry. I will speak again, but only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. The Lord said, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. I feel like when you read the story, you should insert a pregnant pause there, where you stop for a minute. And everything in our hearts should cry out that Abraham needs to ask one more question. But instead we read, and the Lord went away. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, Abraham returned to his place. Now, we know what happens on the other screen after this encounter. 
There's an interaction between these two angels and Lot with the men of the city, and we see their wickedness on display, and it comes to a conclusion in chapter 19, verses 24 and 25, where it says, Then the, rain, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven and overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants and what grew on the ground. But remember that thing we wanted Abraham to ask. He gets down to 10 and he, his heart, fails him to trust that the grace of God is more scandalously abundant than he could ever imagine. What Abraham should have asked is, but for one righteous, for one righteous man, would you spare the city? And because Abraham does not ask it, we do not hear the answer in the book of Genesis. But because the Lord desired it, we have the answer in the book of Romans. Romans 5.17, for if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Christ Jesus. This is the central theme of 2 Peter 2.9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And he knows how to do that because he has given us all that we need in the abundant grace of Jesus Christ. Pass. Mm -hmm. Let's see if I can thread the needle. Chapter 1, enough, but there are those who will tell you not enough. Uh, Peter talks about their character, about their motives, about their, uh, their cynicism, where's the promise of his coming, and their teaching can be very appealing, can be uh, tear churches apart when we see individuals buying in and going down that path and we cry out god where's your judgment and what about my kids is there can we per persevere through this this heresy and this falling away this this break up as it were and chapter 2 verse 9 god is faithful he knows how to carry us through these these tumultuous times where we have great fallings away and attractive but menacing, dangerous doctrines. Peter says, look at their lives, look at their motives, and look at their destiny. God is judging them, and God will judge them. Now let's take that idea into chapter 3, in what is the final takeaway. The final takeaway is the word ready. Stay ready. This is a theme that... that over and over again throughout the scriptures, even the, the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and having to flee uh, after God's judgment begun, begins to fall, the Passover, um, all the way into the New Testament, Jesus and the parables and the kingdom teachings on, on the, the five and the foolish virgins and the five wise virgins that are ready over and over again throughout the New Testament epistles that we need to stay ready if god is currently judging and god is going to come jesus is going to return there is a day called the day of the lord that's all over second peter 
and especially chapter 3, the key word and the key takeaway is, are you ready? Am I ready? The key verse, I think, is verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, the day of the Lord and the return of Christ, because you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. See what Peter does in chapter 3, and this just really simplifies, that there is uh, an intimate relationship connection between our beliefs and our behaviors and between our behaviors and our beliefs. It, It doesn't just go one way. They go back and forth. There are things that are attractive that I really, 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 really want. There are attractive teachings. Ways that I want to express my appetites and get my needs fulfilled. That if I do that, it will demand that I start to change my beliefs. But the other time, the other way is actually more true more of the time. That it's my belief system that opens the door to certain kinds of illicit or immoral behavior. And what you truly, 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 truly believe will actually impact your behaviors. And that's why he says, since you are waiting, waiting, that's a belief idea. You are waiting for the return of Christ. He could return at any moment. If that's true then be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Again, expressed all over the New Testament. I'm going to cherry pick John because John was in the backdrop, 1 John. And we just never got there in the sermon series. So this is 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And if you believe that he's coming, you're going to abide in him. 1 John 3, 3. This is kind of the ribbon on 1 John for me. Everyone who thus hopes in him. That's our belief, right? Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's behavior. Behavior, belief. Belief, behavior. And so we are to hold out with absolute conviction. What Jesus himself said, that what the angels at the, the, the ascension said, this same Jesus will return in like manner. In all through the New Testament epistles, Jesus is going to return. And the two areas, the two ways that we stay ready is in what we believe and what, how we behave. And they work back and forth with, with each other. I read this, I think, last week or two weeks ago, 1 Timothy 4.16. It's a pastoral epistle. It's the apostle speaking to a young pastor uh, who was the bishop of Ephesus. And he said to this young pastor, he said, keep a close watch on yourself. That's your behavior. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching or doctrine. That's your belief. And if you'll do these two things, if you'll stay ready by by holding fast truth in your belief, and at the same time hold fast good, godly, 
Christ-like behavior, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those you lead. What is going on in our world? If I could just touch on this, and Tyler, you're, you're more than welcome. We're going to be short on time, but, but um, something that, that's operating, I believe, in the background of all of our thinking without us even knowing it. I, I said it a couple weeks ago, it's like malware that got on our hard drive and we don't even know it's there is what we've described as MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism. It happens to be the religion of the age, even in the church. It actually is shared by the secular world. Uh, the worldview that's taking place around us in North America is what's called, and again, Tyler's a much uh, more an expert on this, but but expressive individualism that you get to decide who you are what you are what your pronouns are and what you get to be when you grow up and yes there is absolutely christian theology and in, in multiple christian theologies that go with all that and what it really does is it puts man in, in me as an individual at the center of the universe in god is my sky fairy that, that comes as I need him. He's my genie in the bottle. And when I come up against a barrier, against what I decide I want, I call on him and he gets me where I need to be. He's there to serve me instead of me to radically surrender to the Lord of the universe and say, hey, you decide. You decide. Tyler, anything else on that before I give one more scripture and pass it back to you? Because you've done a lot of reading in this. You don't have to <laughs> grab this. Yeah, I mean, I, I am genuinely concerned that when we gather here, we simply gather here because this is part of the life we want rather than what our creator calls us to. We are not the masters of our own destiny. We are not the captains of our ship. If we are to follow Christ, like you said, we need to radically surrender our lives to Jesus. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Mm -hmm. It's not just something we add on to make life more comfortable, or as Karl Marx would have said, to, to opiate, to, uh, to soothe the uh, waves and tribulations that we encounter in life. Uh, realistically, if we are going to do this, if we are going to follow Christ, we need to lay down everything at his feet and say, regardless of what you say, I believe you have created me, I believe you desire my good, and I will entrust all that I am to you. Yep, the language of discipleship is surrender and servanthood, not celebrity. Surrender and servanthood not celebrity. We stay ready by staying humble and surrendered to the Lord in his call in our life. Let me just give you one, one text from the words of Jesus. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? You have both character or behavior and belief. Right there. Faithful is, is behavior. Wise is belief. 
who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant. Humble, submissive, master, what do you have for me? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing. That's behavior. Doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But watch this, because it's the exact same cynical statement found by the false teachers in 2 Peter. But if, if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. Where's the promise of his coming? Everything's normal as usual. Business as usual. Hey, let's get a little bit for ourselves. That's what he's thinking. That's his belief. And so what does he start doing? Begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. And then guess what? The master shows up at a time unexpected. And great discipline occurs for the servant that forgot that his master was returning. Question, are you ready? Pastor Tyler. So we're going to transition at this point into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, and I want, I want to draw your attention back to the passage which Jim started chapter 3 with, the, the verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you were waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You see, the entire uh, activity, the entire ordinance of the Lord's Supper is one that reminds us that our natural state is a state of hostility, it's a state of animosity, it's a state of war, is a state of alienation from God. But all of that can be washed away and replaced with Christ. For those of us that are in him, we find that through Christ we can have peace with God. The Old Testament concept of peace had this capacity and uh, meaning of harmony. Everything was how it was supposed to be. And so I want to take a moment as we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper together to think about, and even since we have our kids with us in here, uh, to take an opportunity to teach them. You see, We've been, uh, we've been giving away, selling in, in the back, uh, this book, Family Discipleship by Matt Chandler and Adam Griffith. And they give us a very realistic, a very doable paradigm for how we can, as Jim talked about at the beginning of the service, disciple our children and disciple our families such that we have a greater connection to Christ and to Christ's body, the church. And they give the paradigm of operating on the basis of moments and operating on the basis of uh, activities or modeling which we can enter into. And so we actually have an opportunity right now as we practice the Lord's Supper to both take an advantage of a moment and to model to our children and to those around us what it is that lies at the heart of the Christian life. And so... I want, to, uh, I want to just invite parents in here to have a conversation with their kids because one of the things that the Lord's Supper, is, one of the things Scripture tells us about the Lord's Supper is that it is for Christians. And so what that means is that in our midst right now, in a way that 
is not usual are a bunch of children who have not understood the gospel because of their age, because of their developmental capacities, because of simply just because of the Lord and the Holy Spirit's timing in their lives, they have not yet grasped the gospel, and we have an opportunity to both explain it to them right now and to, in fact, embody an element of that in front of them. And so I want to invite parents of young children, like I am going to walk off stage in a little bit and explain uh, a few things to my two children sitting over there, Uh, but I want to invite us to essentially enter into a tradition which the Lord starts all the way back in the book of Exodus. See, in the book of Exodus, as the Passover meal, this foundational meal to the Jewish religion becomes instituted. In Exodus 12, we find that the Lord uh, speaks to the people of Israel, and he says, you're going to have this meal with your family, and your kids are not going to understand it. And so when they ask, here's what I want you to say to them, and he says, say to them, that we do this, that this service is done because of the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our house. Do you hear in there, by the way, God being mighty to save in the sparing and mighty to judge? And so the people then, in response to this, they bow their head and they worship because of the, the Lord's wisdom. And I understand that some of you might feel unprepared, so I've, I've taken the liberty of drawing out three things that are fundamental to the Lord's Supper that are important for us to explain to our kids, especially if our kids are not yet ready to partake in the Lord's Supper. They'll be up on the screen. So the three things that we want to draw out are first the elements. What does this wafer, the bread normally, and this juice or sometimes wine, what do these things mean? Were the elements that represent the broken body and the spilt blood of Jesus Christ such that we can have peace with God? And on top of that, we take these elements when we gather together, which means, by the way, that we can look around and notice that we take them as individuals, but we take them in the body of Christ with the family of God. In a sense, this meal in miniature then symbolizes the unity we have because in this world there are all sorts of things that will attempt to divide and pull us apart. But as the table in the family home where people come to eat dinner is a place where the family comes together no matter what things in their schedule and lives have drawn them apart, so we as the body of Christ come back together unified by our older brother in the family and by the head of the church, Jesus Christ, around this meal. And so we can explain to our children the unity of the church, that these people, though we did not choose them, are a part of our family. And here's the third thing that we can draw out, and that's that this meal has a boundary on it. That this meal is only for believers, because only believers have trusted in Jesus Christ, in his uh, identity as the Son of God, in his perfect life of sinless sinless moment-by-moment living unto the glory of God, in his death for our sins, and in his resurrection to new life. Only believers who have trusted in that can partake of this meal. But every believer, all believers, regardless of what you struggle with, regardless of what happened before you walked in the doors of church, regardless of where your heart has been this morning, all believers can participate in this meal. 
And so I want us to explain those three things to our kids. And I want to invite you as well. This is a family worship Sunday, but if you did not come here with your family, if you came here as a single, or if you are engaged or newly married, or uh, your kids are too young to understand that, uh, or if your kids are older and they have accepted the gospel, they're out of the home, one of the things you can do is help our families by modeling what it looks like to believe these things in prayer. And so I would invite those of you who don't have young children to explain this to, to enter into a time of humble confession, whereas Pastor Jim preached on either last week or the week before, the confession is simply saying that God is right about our sin. But to enter into a time of humble confession and repentance with our families, with those who we've come with, and understand and accept the offer of God's free grace back to us. And then I will come back up on stage and we'll partake of this family meal together. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.